you are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Tonight, we're going to be in Hebrews, the sixth chapter. We, of course, are under the grand theme of all things being greater and better in Christ. And as we have studied, uh, we've seen that the book of Hebrews uh, develops that through a series of arguments and exhortations. And where we are tonight is uh, over on the right-hand side of the exhortations, and we're at the fifth one down, which is the uh, exhortation to have a confidence in God's Word. Uh, We note that the argument that was laid forth about the great priesthood of Jesus Christ, the Hebrew writer interrupted with really sober and chilling warnings about the dangers of spiritual immaturity and even of falling away, uh, and that those who had uh, tasted and known and uh, been at the first partakers of so many of the blessings of God, that if they would walk away from it, they'd be like the land that's under a curse and would soon be burned. But uh, without withdrawing that warning, uh, he wanted those uh, who listened to him, the majority of his audience, it seems by far, he he wanted them to have confidence and not uh, just a dread terror that they'd fall under that uh, curse. But he ended that exhortation, the writer did, in chapter 6, verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this way. For God is not so unjust as to forget your works and the love that you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And so that's our exhortation on the danger of falling away ended with some encouragement uh, to uh, the reader uh, that though this was said to them in the large, it would not be uh, about them because uh, they would be of faith and they would continue in that patiently waiting on the promises of God. Well, tonight then, uh, our exhortation, the confidence in God's word chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, is uh, an example of one who had such confidence, who did inherit the promise, and everything that God had said to him did come true. And so it's uh, faithful Abraham, uh, the forefather of the Jews, both in faith and in lineage, our forefather by faith, the one of whom we are an heir of the promise through. And so, Uh, Verse 13 now, our study. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. 
for men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them an oath is given as confirmation and is the end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring to even more show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that's set before us. This hope we have is an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one who enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So here was our encouragement. Here was our exhortation to have confidence in what God has said. For you believers, an exhortation on God's word and how God sympathetically works with us, giving us uh, such assurance and confidences as we need, centered around the work of Jesus and the thing that he has accomplished. And so based on what God has said, let's follow along. So again, let's hear God's word and let's take a full measure of confidence from it. So we turn back to those thrilling days of yesteryear, back to the book of Genesis, the 22nd chapter, where we find that God made a promise with an oath to Abraham. God, verse 13, it said, made a promise to Abraham. And he swore to Abraham. Now, we think, well, aren't Christians not supposed to swear? Well, those are deceptive oaths. Uh, those are unnecessary oaths. Those are adding oaths to uh, uh, try to assure people that you're trustworthy when basically if you were trustworthy, you could just say yes and no, which you, as a Christian, should as a general practice, say yes and no. But there's a place for solemn oaths, and we find them all through the Scripture, Old and New Testament alike. And the reason why an oath is used, and it's why it can be used as a deceptive thing, if the people are a bad character, is that an oath is calling in the highest authority. Well, God calls in the highest authority, just as a man would do. He condescends and acts like a man to give assurance to Abraham. But the highest assurance he can appeal to is actually himself. So God gives a promise, and God backs it up with an oath. Uh, Genesis 22, we said, is the place. We'll read that now. Genesis 22, 15, beginning. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this thing. And that thing was offering Isaac as a sacrifice when God told him to although he was the one through whom all the promises were promised to come. And goodness, if you had waited a long time on Isaac, what would be the hope of a second heir? But no, he's told Isaac is the heir. And so he's the only hope of the promises of God coming. And God said, sacrifice him. And Abraham said, yes, Lord. And he did. So uh, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, which, of course, you know, God gave his son his only son, and he didn't spare at the last minute, but he, he did suffer and die for us. But when Abraham did and was willing to do what God himself was willing and, and did do, uh, God says, I indeed will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven 
and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of your enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you've obeyed my voice. And so the great promise was the one to the one who obeyed in faith. I see no difference in that in the situation today. The great promise is to those who have the faith to act on what God says in accord with his instruction. And so it says that God swore by, uh, since there was no one to swear by greater than he, he swore by himself. So he wants Abraham to know, I'm really serious about this. That's the reason and uh, rationale for our oaths. We want somebody to know they can really count on us, that we're really serious about this, that it's a truly, it's a solemn thing which we are undertaking uh, to uh, to do, uh, which is why we uh, give an oath in the court of law, which is why, well, the, the vows of marriage is, is a type of an oath, and other things of the highest highest regard and things of the highest uh, uh, importance uh, will have them done under oath. And so here God uh, volunteers that which he did not need to do. God volunteered with an oath so that Abraham might have more confidence to believe it. There are some difficulties in believing God at times, because we know that we're asked to believe the impossible. But so was Abraham, that he, the old man, and his old woman wife, they were 90 to 100, I can call them old, his old this old man, his old woman wife, they were going to have a son. This one son was going to produce such offspring as that they would be uncountable. This is impossible, but it did occur. It happened exactly as God said. Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Today we have, likewise, some impossible promises to believe. Uh, we, we are to believe that one rose from the dead. Well, everybody knows that's impossible. But like we said at Sunday service, it, it is impossible. And so that's why we celebrate it, because it happened. And so, yes, it's impossible aside from the power of God. And so uh, the promise that the sinful can be made righteous, uh, the promise that all things will be restored and be made new, the promise that there'll one day be a dwelling where, where righteousness uh, just induce everything, where, where righteousness dwells, will be a place where we can live. And we look around and go, no, I, I, don't, I don't see that happening. That looks impossible. And so all kinds of things uh, that are impossible with men, but possible with God, we've been asked to believe. And if we patiently wait, we will obtain the promise. This is our job, as it was Abraham's in his time, to patiently wait and obtain. And so he waited and he obtained the promise. Again, God tried to make this uh, it, uh, for him who was a believer, for him who trusted in God and was called a friend of God. He tried to make this as easy as possible for Abraham to take seriously. He gave an oath. Again, he didn't have to do that. Now, verse 16, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath of, is given as confirmation. So the oath is a confirmation until or unless we can see it with our own eyes. And so the oath was given as a confirmation, just as we have the promise of God as our confirmation. He had the oath as his confirmation. Well, that ends disputes among men. So when someone says, I swear it, when they say, I swear before God, or, you know, in, in 
I never trust anybody who ever said this, but you'll hear it. The guy says, I swear on my mother's grave. It's like, hey, I know your mom. She lives down on Second Street. She is not dead. No. But what, I never trust anybody who says, I swear on my mother's grave. But in case, but men say that thinking that'll be the end. Because what are you going to argue with when a guy says, I swear on whatever? I mean, he's already given the highest thing he can give. Well, here God gave the highest thing he can give. His oath, uh, his character secures this. And of course, an oath is only as secure as the character of the one making it, right? Uh, Numbers 23. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He Has he not said he will? Has he not said and he will do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So, you know, we know some unreliable characters. And someone says, oh, you're depending on him to do what he said? Good luck. No, with God, we're depending on him to do what he said. And it's not good luck. It's the sure and certain promises of God. And so, like we, uh, the, the words we repeat so often at the side of a grave, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection, right? Those aren't just an empty phrase. It is a sure and a certain hope. And actually, well, that language could have been borrowed from this text right here. So in the same way, again, God wanted to give confidence in a, in a way that, again, he didn't have to do. He didn't need to condescend to do this. But for the believer, God wants us to have confidence in belief. There are times when, like in the parables or in some of the prophecies, yes, God hid things. God withheld wisdom. God took wisdom. When people live in rebellion, there are times when God actively lets them go on into darkness. He lets them believe a lie. He lets them be deluded because that's what they want. Romans 1, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1. There's all kinds of delusions. God lets the unfaithful, the rebellious, he lets them entertain that. He lets them get lost in it, totally wrapped up in it. But for the faithful, he makes belief as easy in, as he can. And so here's the thing to make belief easy. It's the oath of God. He used the forms of men we didn't have to so that Abraham would be confident in the things that God said. And so, again, he's quite literally been asking here Abraham to believe the unbelievable, to believe the impossible. Abraham believes it because God said so. In the book of Romans, in the fourth chapter, where there's a discussion about faith and saving faith, the example of Abraham is brought up. And this is what it says there about the saving faith of Abraham. It says in Romans 4 and verse 17, beginning, as it's written, a father of many nations, I have made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Well, there's another impossible thing, making things out of nothing. And yet, what do we see around us? We see everything made and where did it come from? The visible made from the invisible, the stuff made out of the not stuff, the things made out of the not things, the power of God to speak it to existence. So in verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed so that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, 
since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So what do you do when you have these impossible promises? You know, like the man of La Mancha, you dare to dream the impossible dream, but it's not impossible because God's promised it. So it's a surety, even if by physical means and ways and standards, it would appear impossible. Again, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. In our Hebrews reading, he offered his son. In Genesis, we see that he offered his son. Here is he did not waver, but grew strong in faith. How? Verse 21, by being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So who is the God of the impossible? It's our God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of David, uh, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so he was fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform, therefore it was credited to him as righteousness. That's quoted, that's from Genesis 15, 6. There's quoted twice in um, Romans 4, it's also in Psalm 32. Faith is credited as being righteous. And so Abraham had faith that God would make the impossible possible. And so again today, how do we know that after we're dead, we'll be raised? I buried a lot of people in my job. I've never seen one raised yet, but I expect one day I'll see them all raised at once. When What happens when he speaks the word? I tell people that by the gospel, your sins are forgiven. And people who are in sin, they go, how can my sin be forgiven? How can this be made new? How can there be renewal? How can there be forgiveness? God said so. How can all things be restored? And how can all things be made right? Well, there's one with the power. There's one with the knowledge. There's one with the care, the one with the love, the one with the character to do the things that he said. And still, Satan tries to sow in us doubt and fear and worry that something's going to come up that we can't handle. Well, I don't worry about that. I know there are going to be things come up I can't handle. But I know the one who can handle them. And I know the one who will give us strength to carry on. And so in the face of continual accusations of evil and of sin by the accuser of our brethren in the world that flouts his precepts and flouts his order, and makes a mockery of God, I know and trust that God will win out. I know that victory will come through Christ because his promises are immutable, that he is true and just and powerful. So, verse 18, as we go back to the text, so by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. There's two unchangeable things. There's God's promise, and there's God's oath. Well, we know he cannot lie. Titus 1, 2, it's impossible for God to lie. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not. Second uh, Timothy 2, if we're faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself, and he knows he said these things. And we know he said these things 
and he'll do the things that he said. So the two things that are interchangeable, both are premised on the fact that God can't lie. He can't go against his oath, and he can't go against his promise. And so sometimes we have these little silly games that atheists play to try to uh, set up logical contradictions and conundrums by which, you know, we'll lose confidence in God. Is God so powerful that he can make a rock that he can't move? Uh, you know, is, is God is God so uh, powerful that uh, he can set up some way to defeat himself or some other such nonsense? But in the things that matter, he'll do what he says. He'll do what he says. And so we can then in that, that he do, he'll do what he says, and every page of Scripture says that, we can take strong encouragement, not a little bit of encouragement, it says here, but a strong encouragement. And when you're under constant attack, a strong encouragement is needed. Uh, we have uh, this in one of our hymns. Though all hell assail me, I shall not be moved. Why? Because Jesus will not fail me. I shall not be moved. Though the tempest rages, I shall not be moved. Why? Because on the rock of ages, that's where I am, I will not be moved. And so these, this is the aid God gives us. The, the many promises, the many stories of his faithfulness. Do we read those in our study do we have a regular plan of Bible reading to remind us of these things? Just the other day, I was embarrassed when I was teaching a class. I was teaching a class on a certain text, and the text before me was almost as if I'd never read it. The sad thing about that text, which as I prepared to teach that class, I'm like, man, I don't remember this. I, I had taught it four months ago in another setting. I taught it a few years ago in another setting still. I wrote a study book uh, on, on the text that covered that text uh, when, when dealing with that book of the Bible. And yet here I was on a, you know, it was, it was I think it was a Tuesday afternoon, maybe been a Monday. Here I'm reading this text to prepare to teach it. And it's like, wow, this is here. Yeah. And I'd entirely forgotten. I'd entirely forgotten. That's why we need these reminders that God is faithful. God wrote that, and God still remembers it. I've read it, and I've taught it, and I don't remember it. But God remembers it. God remembers it. And all those promises that I'd forgotten, those promises are true. And this promise, we're especially glad, uh, the one that came with an oath, as we just read from Genesis uh, chapter 22, because it's one of the promises that repeat the part where we're in it. It's not often we read the Bible and go, yeah, that, that text right there, I'm in that text. In this case, in this text, Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18, of which was just referred to, I'm in it. Because it says in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. That's me. I'm part of the all nations. I'm part of the blessed all nations because I have faith in Christ who received those promises and distributed those promises made to Abraham. Genesis 3.16, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. 
There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And you belong to if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so this text that the Hebrew writer brings up, if we go back and read the text to which he refers, we find ourselves in it and we find Christ in it. So very apropos text to bring up to talk about the surety of the promises of God, that Jesus was in it and so are we. And so then we have then fled, if those of us who have fled to him for refuge may find a, a strong hope. So we who have fled for refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us, we can have this hope as an anchor for the soul. So based on the promise of God. So the promised Abraham, it was backed by an oath, and this is now where we're anchored. This is now where our hope is set. Another hymn we have. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith by his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, who unto the Savior for refuge have fled? What more can he say? He said, I, I promise Abraham I'm going to do it. Uh, Abraham, I'm giving you an oath. 1,500 years later in Christ, he did it. He brought the Gentiles into the church. That was for our time now, 2,000 years ago. So 3,500 years ago, God made a promise. That promise is still operative. That promise is still secure. That promise is still what we operate under even to this very day. And so it's a firm foundation. As it says in verse 19, this hope, this hope we have in God through Jesus Christ, this hope we have is an anchor for the soul. And so again, we think about the world where so many people are unsteady. They're not on firm ground. They are not anchored. And then come the storms of life. Okay, another hymn. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? When the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? Well, we have an anchor, don't we? That keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And so our anchor, our, uh, our place of security, an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. And so that firm foundation, secure, grounded, rooted, tied down well, tied down to something that ain't moving, so we won't move very far either. So an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. And now, this is the end of the exhortation on confidence and on falling away. The end of all these exhortations, we're going to get back now to talking about the priesthood of Christ. And so the author here in the middle of the sentence transitions us back toward the priesthood of Christ, the future studies. This hope we have is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, verse 19. And, and, so the, the firm foundation on God's word, and we have Jesus. We have one who enters within the veil. We have one who went to the in the veil. The, the veil is reference to that which separated the holy place from the most holy, that going through the veil would go into the innermost sanctuary of all things. 
And so in the tabernacle, only the high priest in the temple, again, just the high priest alone as a representative for the people could go into the place where none of them could ever go. They had no hope of going in there. Only the high priest, even among the priests, would go. And he didn't go in there often. He went in there yearly. And there he would make an offering for the people. Well, we have one who went within the veil, but not in the earthly tabernacle or earthly temple. Chapter 9, skipping ahead. Uh, chapter 9, 24, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so Christ, our high priest, is in the presence of God, not in God's holiest room on earth, but in the throne room of God in heaven. He has gone in the veil. He has gone and sat down before and beside his father. And notice this as well, verse 20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. And this is the great contrast between the law and the gospel. In the law with the Levitical priest, the high priest was a representative of the people. Now, we were studying on Luke on Wednesday night, where the high priest is trying to kill the Messiah. Sometimes the high priest was a pretty terrible example and a pretty terrible representative of the people, but he still had a role to represent the people. And he would go where they could not. Well, Jesus doesn't go where we cannot go as our representative. Jesus goes where we will all eventually go as our forerunner. Just as he's the first fruit of the resurrection, so he is the forerunner, the pace setter, the way setter, the way shower of the way into the very presence of God, the forerunner for us having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so this Melchizedek priesthood that he has, which brings up exactly the same thing that was mentioned back in chapter 5 uh, from Psalm 110, before the author went on his exhortations about uh, not uh, being spiritually mature, don't fall away and have confidence in God's word. Back to the same place we left off now, uh, before the exhortations in the priesthood, this Melchizedekian priesthood, uh, the priest who was in Genesis, um, I think, 13. <laughs> I have to look that up. Uh, but uh, the priest who was the priest of Salem, priest and king, uh, through whom Abraham worshiped God. This priest is not our representative. This priest is our forerunner. This priest is bringing us with him to the holy place. And so that remains now to be developed in the next uh, chapters uh, on the priesthood of Christ and the ministry of Christ and the new covenant. And so the security now and the hope for the future, that's what we have through the word of God in Jesus Christ. And Goodness, isn't that so much better than anything the law put forth on offer? So our confidence in God's word and the benefits that come with it in Jesus as we continue, Lord willing, in the future, our study of Hebrews. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.